Hello, my name is Katherine Moore, social worker, mom, coffee lover, and founder of Social Workers Rise, where we inspire social workers to connect, expand their knowledge, and change more lives than they ever thought possible. I'm so excited you found my podcast. We will talk everything social work on every level from micro to macro. We will hear the stories of social workers who are doing big things, learn new skills, and most importantly, give you actionable steps to make a difference today. Let's go. Before we get started in this episode, I wanted to share a resource with you that I wish I knew about a long time ago, one that makes it easy to start a side business to generate more income so you stress less about your money, you're able to pay your student loans without worry, and you're able to afford those online shopping sprees. I see you. No judgment here. I am with you. And what's so great is that as social workers, we have so many powerful skill sets that other people want and need to learn from us. This is such an impactful way to continue making massive change in the world without spending a lot of extra time on this. So I personally use Kajabi to create my online course and I absolutely love it. And right now they're giving away free trials. So click the link in the show notes to get started on your side biz now. And with that, let's get into this episode. Hey, Jay, thank you so much for coming on with Social Workers Rise podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. Um, Just to be clear, you also go by Justin, but we can call you Jay here. Is that right? Yep. You can call me. I mean, yep. Technically, you guys can call me whatever you want, like especially you. Like, I like you. So Jay, Justin, that weirdo on Instagram, whatever you want to call me. That social worker, Jay. (laughs) (laughs) Or that one, though. Yes, yes. So I was actually stalking you on social media. Oh, fantastic. And yeah, yeah, that's my job as a podcaster is to stalk all my guests. <laughs> <laughs> you have so much going on, like so many good things that you're building, that you're setting the foundation for, that I'm so excited to see you just take off with all these things in 2021. And we will get into that a little bit later, but I want to first start from the very beginning. So how did you get into social work to begin with? How did you know social work was what you wanted to do? Oh my goodness. Well, uh, I'm trying to think, do I want to give you the long version of that or the short one? Because it's kind of a longer story. Um, The big way that I usually just summarize it is... Um, I kind of actually ended up here on accident and it just sort of worked out for me. Um, so what happened was I was originally going to go to law school and where I was going to school, they didn't really have like a pre-law program or anything like that. So I was trying to think like, okay, what do I want to do? That's like kind of sort of court related. Okay. So how I ended up in social work was actually kind of an accident. So what happened was, is when I went to school, they didn't really have a pre-law program because I was going to go to law school 
at the time. And so I was trying to think, okay, what am I going to do for my bachelor's then? Because, you know, yeah, you kind of got to get a bachelor's. You kind of got to finish undergrad and do what you want to do before you can get into like law school and stuff like that. So I knew they had a social work program where I was going to school. And the whole stigma of us like trying to like, you know, get rid of CPS and, you know, we don't take away babies. Well, I was going to social work originally to go take away babies and go be in court. So it's kind of like, it's like the most ironic little tale that I've ever had to tell because I ended up here just solely for the reason that I just wanted to get experience in a courtroom and work with attorneys and things like that. So I figured that'd be a good route based on the options I had. And what ended up happening uh, through the course of my education was the, this passion of taking away these babies from like these, you know, quote unquote, horrible people or whatever. What happened in my first semester is it actually reframed my whole entire mindset of individuals in CPS. And so I ironically ended up in my first job out of my master's program, I ended up working as a community-based therapist for parents um, and some children too, but mostly parents involved with cps and my role was actually to help them get their babies back so it, it's just it's really ironic actually when i really look back on it now yeah that's interesting because it's it's very it's similar to what you had in mind but it's almost the opposite it just it just honestly completely flipped like there was like I don't know. It was like night and day from where I wanted to be to where I ended up. And I just ended up falling in love with it. And um, yeah, I just ended up working with a lot of individuals with addiction and just fell in love with them, to be honest. Right, right. Wow. That's that's fascinating. So you started out with your in community mental health, essentially, right? Um, Essentially. Yeah, it was funded by the courts, basically. Um, I worked in Indiana at the time. So a lot of their court ordered services were actually paid for by the government, which I don't know if that's a common practice or not, because I practice in Indiana and Michigan. And um, in Michigan, it's night and day here too, because they actually pay for their own services for the most part, or it's funded by insurance. So, Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, and you working in two states is something that I also want to ask you, you know, a little bit later, but for right now, so you worked doing that with the courts and then, um, and then what other experience, you know, have you done or are you doing right now? Yeah. So my other experience, um, I started off with my bachelor's degree working for, um, a rehabilitation center. So that was my first real job in social work while I was going to school for my master's. Um, and it was for individuals with substance use disorders. Um, and then I told you about the master stuff that I did for a couple of years, Um, I worked in a juvenile detention uh, rehabilitation center in Detroit, where I focused a lot of my work on the substance abusing teens. And I've also worked in a telehealth agency that uh, specialized in substance use treatment. So a lot of mental health, um, addiction treatment, and trauma I worked with, basically. Yeah, I'm hearing a lot of addiction and mental health. Um, which is why I think it's so cool about your business idea that you are coming up with. And I just, I just love the whole idea. So in addition to all of that, you are also specialized or have experience with eating disorders, right? Uh, Yeah. I have a personal recovery journey from it actually. And you're using your personal recovery journey and integrating that into the business that you're building that is integrating 
mental health and physical health. Yes, absolutely. So the eating disorder that I'm personally in recovery from is binge eating disorder, um, which is what I often call the forgotten eating disorder. It is the most common eating disorder in Western society. And it's often forgot about simply because in Western society in America and other countries like us, um, it's often normalized. It's often celebrated. And it's not looked at as a dysfunctional eating pattern here. Um, there are a small uh, but loud group of activists that are currently trying to do things, one of which is to try and eliminate this eating disorder um, from the DSM-5, which I personally don't agree with, just from my own recovery standpoint from it. Um, I've been in recovery from the eating disorder from se for several years now, and I can very much tell you that this eating disorder at one point uh, took a big hit on my mental health, on my finances. I was spending so much money on food. To me, it was just like a drug. And honestly, um, I would sometimes even bounce my checking accounts. I would bounce my credit cards just so I could go binge. And so I want to take my experience that I found through mental health therapy support groups, as well as I learned balance fitness. Um, I want to put that into a nonprofit because I feel like fitness is almost this underutilized antidepressant and coping skill. And it's just really not talked about other than for vanity purposes, which I think you could do so much more and be for so much more effective things than just, oh, you dropped 20 pounds, so you look great. And it just validates your whole worth. I think it did so much more for me uh, when I started using it as a mental health tool rather than using this as like a way to combat your overeating and binge eating. Right. So I'll be honest, I am not very well versed or well versed at all in eating disorders so and so what you said about the binge eating disorder and how you would spend all your money and not be able to pay bills like yeah that really does sound like an addiction in what we're used to hearing about but you're right we don't really talk about binge eating as an addiction so it's interesting that they would want to take that away um, and that there's even controversy within just that little niche of um, of mental health, right? Absolutely. I think we see that a lot of the time um, with a lot of different mental health disorders as well, just because from what I can tell in society and just from my work as a therapist, um, a lot of people don't like labels, which I understand a lot of the time why people don't like labels. I personally think labels helped me. I think that giving myself a name to what I had going on with me, I think it was just something that I absolutely needed. And rather than just, oh, well, like for like everyone wants to go talk about diet culture and say you shouldn't diet and you just go back and forth with it. And so I just thought I was crazy. Like, oh my God, why can't I just stop eating? And it, when I realized it wasn't just a willpower thing and I had this name for the specific way that I'm practicing and eating, I was like, wow, this makes sense to me. And it just kind of cleared up a lot of things for me. Right. When do you, when do you feel like you had the eating disorder? Like looking back, was it there a long time before you noticed it or before it started taking, like making a negative impact on your life? I can remember it going as far back as if I had to guesstimate, um, I would say about 10 years old, I was definitely engaging in a lot of those binging behaviors when I was 10. Um, and then right after my uncle died, when I was about 
14 or 15 is when it really started spiraling. Um, so around those times, I would say in like early childhood, um, early adolescence, I would probably say it started really picking up more and more. Okay. Wow. And then when did you realize that you needed to change or that you got help or that you, you feel like you made a recovery? Well, that is actually the funny part because the thing with my eating disorder is I didn't even realize that there was an issue with my eating until other than like the obvious, like, Oh, I just lost a bunch of weight and then I gained a bunch of weight and you know, I'm going back to the way I was eating, you know, but I didn't realize I had a specific eating disorder until I was in college actually, when I actually had a class on diagnosing and they started talking about addictions work and how people may overspend their money or, you know, take money from people. And it kind of started as a joke in my head, like, oh my God, that totally sounds like me with food. And I just kind of just let it sit there for a little bit. And so I started researching like what this could be. And so I found out in college that there was this term called binge eating disorder. And it's just not even talked about in regular language in life. You know, even with mental health conditions today, we often talk about depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, maybe even schizophrenia. Binge eating disorder is just not even in those terminologies. We often know anorexia and bulimia, like the back of our hand, but nobody really, when I was growing up and even in college, or excuse me, in high school, I remember people talking about eating disorders and it was only about anorexia and bulimia overeating wasn't really a problem. So the fact that society actually sometimes celebrated and approved of my eating disorder, it kind of just fueled it. And so what it made me realize was this type of addiction is no better or worse than any other addiction. And the only reason I can go and go get a whole degree in a field where I want to go help people is because society has deemed this quality worthy, but these group of people unworthy. So what do you mean by celebrating? Because you said this twice and that word has stuck out for me. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. So in our Western society, we tend to engage in a lot of food practices, right? And that's like, we often think of the holidays like very now coming up. We have Thanksgiving coming up. We have Christmas coming up. In America, we eat for birthdays. We eat for the Super Bowl. We eat on weekends when we go out with friends. We overindulge on a Tuesday because, oh, I'm going out to dinner with my friend on a Tuesday. And we just come in our society. Um, processed foods and overeating and binging is often just so normalized and sometimes even celebrated. And it allows us to just practice it recreationally. Hmm, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And I think even growing up, we start we start our relationship with food very, very young from the time that we're children. And we I imagine, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm just thinking of my own experience. But um, I learned about food and the way that I ate from the way that I was raised. My grandmother was, you know, she was from the depression area and she's like, you finish everything that's on yeah. your plate. And if I wasn't hungry or if I was full, I just learned everything on my plate, no matter how big the plate was. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I was actually just having this conversation with a friend of mine. Um, her dad is from Japan, actually. And so in Japan and other countries in Asia, um, it's actually, um, especially nowadays, it's actually more of a custom to 
not actually finish your food. Like you actually eat and you have to leave stuff on the plate, essentially. Um, it's just more so about portioning out your food and being balanced with it there. Really? That's, um, I couldn't, I can't even imagine leaving some sushi on my plate. It's so delicious. It's, it's honestly, like, even for me today, it's still a struggle just being able to be okay with leaving something on your plate, being able to just walk away from it because you're full. Like, it's something I have to, like, mindfully do to this day. Yeah, I get that. I get that. When I was trying to just be more healthy and fit, I, I had to consciously say, okay, it's enough to where I'm full and let me, I, I really don't need to eat everything that's on my plate. Like I'm full, I'm fine. Let me make an attempt to leave it there. Exactly. Exactly. And I also want to make sure that um, the audience isn't misled either. Um, well, being in recovery from uh, binge eating disorder, it does not mean you can't enjoy food. I often get that a lot whenever I talk about this, where people act like you can't just recreationally go eat and actually eat something you want to eat. Like, you know, God forbid you eat a piece of cake. Does that mean you're not recovering anymore? No, it does not. The difference between an eating disorder and an addiction, typically recovery more so looks like an abstinence model and addiction treatment. Now there are some exceptions to that, like medicated assisted treatment, harm reduction, things like that. But ultimately the goal is to eventually abstain from it completely. With eating disorders, you're looking for more of a balance. You're not looking to restrict too, too much, but you're also not looking to completely go over the edge. It's lo looking for that equilibrium. Mm -hmm. Okay, that makes sense. And so how did you eventually like enter into recovery and what role did physical health have in that? Well, physical health is, was a love hate relationship at one point because I often used exercise as a punishment. I remember being in high school. I want to say the first time I ever went on a diet was when I was about 13 or 14. So right before that period where my uncle passed away and my overeating and binging kind of went a little more out of control. I remember having, um, I can't remember how much I weighed at the time, but I remember wanting to lose about 20 pounds and I was going to figure out how to do this in about four weeks because I just felt like I needed to do it. Um, I was encouraging my family. So this um, scale of yo-yo dying also ran to my family too. I saw my mom do it. I saw my dad do it. I saw a lot of my older relatives do it. And so to me, yo-yo dieting was just kind of normal. So I figured it was just, you know, it was my calling. It was my time now to start doing this because I'm 14 now. So I went to go, basically I decided that I needed to restrict my calories so much because of my binging that I basically wasn't eating. So I kind of went into like, people call it anorexic mode. I've heard it called as before. And so, but the difference between me and someone who's diagnosed with anorexia is I want to go back to eating so bad. So I'm going to lose this weight as quick as possible. So I can go back to doing what I was doing. And so part of the ways I did that was restricting so much and also exercising five to seven hours a day. And if you ate more than the little like couple hundred calories you were allowed to eat during this period, guess what? You're going to go work out some more. So it became a very toxic relationship with exercise. What really got me into recovery um, was later when I was an adult, I ended up getting into therapy actually. And I also ended up starting to process some of this trauma. And he also, my therapist taught me all about fitness for health versus for vanity. 
which to me, now that I preach it a lot, it's actually the best thing I've ever learned. But when I first learned it, it was the most foreign thing I've ever heard of in my life. Like, what? Like, why would I exercise other than to lose weight? Like, who cares? So, right. I started, do- and I also researched it a little bit in college, but it was like one of those things where like I researched it, but it was like for a paper and I was like, mm, okay, I don't believe it, whatever. So it's always been in my head. It just wasn't clicking. So when I started hearing it from my therapist, it kind of slowly started clicking for me. And so being able to learn how to work out for 30 minutes to an hour and not being able to overexert myself, essentially, that was like such a foreign concept for me that today, now I look back at it and I'm just like, Jay, what what the heck were you thinking, basically? <laughs> but it's like, now I look at it so much, it's like, it's brought my life so much peace and it allowed me to develop an activity that I once couldn't stand. And now I absolutely love it, but I'm also okay with putting it down when I need to. That makes sense. So you have more of a healthy balance with, with your, the amount of, the amount of time that you're exercising, the amount that you're pushing your body and also to like the amount of nutrition that you're giving your body. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm wondering, you know, what was, what do you remember as the biggest shift for once you started focusing more on your physical health for health, what was the biggest shift in your mental or emotional health? My biggest shift would probably be the fact that Um, a lot of my binging had to do with mood swings. And so when a lot of those mood swings went away, when I was more so just using fitness as like a balanced regime, I almost feel like the natural endorphins in my body, along with just giving myself a mental break as well. I think the the combination of those two factors really alleviate a lot of those up and down feelings that I had. Um, Because when I was in therapy at one point, we actually were thinking that maybe it was bipolar disorder, but it was like as a co-occurring disorder to it. But I didn't really at the time feel depressed per se going into therapy. So it was kind of weird. I was like, well, I'm having these up and down mood swings, but I'm not necessarily depressed. If I'm, I'm more so irritated and angry, but I'm not depressed. And so over time, what we learned And what I learned in therapy is my co-occurring disorder was actually ADHD because ADHD can actually produce a lot of mood swings and it can, and you know, just with the stereotype of ADHD, we're all over the place in general, you know, hence my whole social media and everything you found. But, um, we're, it basically can produce a lot of those mood swings. And so sometimes when we're angry and irritated, we can often look at that as like a depressive type of feeling. And so, I was almost misdiagnosed as a result of that, just for the simple reasoning that ADHD isn't always associated with mood swings when actually it is. I think it's actually one of the criteria specifically too. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Okay. So, because I I know that I've done some recent reading on on social, like on stressors, Mm -hmm. right? So social workers have ridiculously stressful jobs and we are also absorbing trauma from others and also we are more likely than the general population to have experienced trauma ourselves Mm -hmm. so what i've learned and come to understand recently is you know we take in all of this trauma right like we we're holding on to it and the body literally holds on to Mm -hmm. it And so by exercising and moving 
it allows the body to release those bad emotions and those traumas. And, and so I'm wondering, you know, it seems like all of these are kind of tied in together. Do you feel like that's true? Like maybe that was also part of it that when you're exercising, you're releasing that stress and, and some of your trauma. I think in a way, yes, for sure. Um, I notice whenever I am having like an irritated day or I'm having a really stressful day, um, I will go to the gym and I'll go into our hit zone at the gym and I will just duke it out on the punching bag for about five rounds. Or if I have a workout partner, um, sometimes we'll put some boxing gloves on and spar with each other if I have an experienced partner. So for me, being able to release some of that tension and irritation through that, I notice helps. Now, when I'm very hyperactive, um, cardio tends to help me because with my ADHD, because my mind will go 20 different places in a day sometimes. And so when I go do cardio and have a cardio day on days like that, it's almost like releasing that hyperactivity as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, that's a good point. And I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, I wanted to, kind of dig in a little bit deeper because we are, as social workers, we do have such a stressful job and burnout is so high right now. So do you have tips about how we may be able to use, you know, like physical health um, to kind of counteract that, that burnout or even get us, you know, feeling better out of burnout? Yeah, absolutely. So just like any other self-care routine that you have, you really need to put fitness in your life regularly if it's a route that you truly enjoy. And so what I do about four times a week at least, I will physically schedule some type of gym time, whether it's during my lunch hour, during, you know, right before work or, you know, sometime late in the evening after work, just wherever I can fit it in, I'm making a commitment to myself to go and work out. And I think that the reason that works for me for burnout is just because it's giving me that time to say, okay, here's me stepping away from work. This is my work zone time. And then over here is my workout time, um, as well as other activities that I do just because I'm, you know, in addition, you know, I work 40 hours a week right now at a job and I'm developing a couple of different things. So I have to schedule those times off when I do that. Um, I think putting yourself on a good time management schedule in general actually can help combat burnout. I actually noticed that tends to be one of the top three things I usually hear in cases of social workers being burnt out is they feel like they just don't have enough time in the day to either get through something or, you know, in fitness's case, they don't even have time to go work out, they feel like. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's true. So with all with your 40-hour workweek job and then also building businesses on the side, do you ever get like a guilt trip about setting those boundaries for yourself to work out? Um, no, not really, actually. I think that my school, I got really lucky when I went to school because I had a, first of all, I had a class of like maybe 20 students per class that I had. It was sometimes even less. I've had classes where it was like five of us in a class and that was it. So it was very small. And so we got to really know our professors well. And because of that, we got to do a lot more deep conversations rather than just focus on the academia. And so one of the things that a couple of my professors always preach was about self-care and making sure that we have a priority to give self-care to us 
And I've noticed that a lot of universities that I never even realized just because I didn't go to them, they don't always preach that. It's something that maybe they brush over, but because there's so much material they have to do and there's so many students and there's so many, you know, papers or assignments or tests they got to grade, the professors aren't really going over it like they should. So it often, this is, this is like, I've totally had like seminars like this. I'm not sure if you have. I've actually had at previous jobs, um, seminars where they talk about self-care and it's always like the stereotypical, like, well, go, just go do yoga, which is a, again, it's fitness, but that's like what the first thing they offer is like, go do yoga and then go stretch. And I've actually had a self-care seminar actually where they said like cleaning out your garage is self-care, which I don't know, maybe it, I guess it is taking care of your mind stuff like that, but it was like very generic and very cookie cutter. And so for them to actually tell us what exactly self-care is, it's not just the massages. It's just not the bubble baths. It's not just working out, even though I'm here preaching it. It's not just working out. It's also doing that internal work too. And what is that internal work? It can look like? differently for a lot of people. So for me, um, internal work at one point was definitely going to therapy. Um, I'm looking right now actually to continue therapy because I'm ready to discover some new things in my life just because of the current journey that I'm on. Um, I've been in a 12-step group for my eating disorder, so it can look like support groups for some people. Uh, for some people, they just need a social network. Some people who are, I would even argue, away from the job. Like, I definitely encourage social workers to find friends outside of their career. Um, that is something I definitely try to do, just because we kind of get into this niche of, like, just hanging out with people who completely understand us. And what ends up happening is we end up telling us these negative things about our job that ends up becoming contagious. And honestly, I truly believe that burnout is contagious and trendy. So whenever we hang out with these people where it's just really contagious and they're always talking about being burnt out, we start to think we may be getting burnt out. And so as a result, I just say, you know, find, uh, find friends who, I don't know, work at a factory, find friends who are lawyers, just find friends who do a few things that are different than you. Because if you surround yourself with just social workers, I mean, you're just gonna, it's almost like being in an echo chamber. Yeah, it's true. And it's interesting that you say burnout is trendy. And I kind of, I'll be honest, I kind of got triggered by that. Because um, from my experience, I felt alone mm -hmm. in my burnout. I felt the opposite. Like I didn't have anyone to talk mm -hmm. to, but I can see, you know, misery loves, loves company. So I can see also on the flip side is that sometimes when I did talk to people about it, they're like, Oh yeah, me too. That's just part of the job. That's just being a social worker. And so I was like, Oh shoot. Well, okay. Then I'm supposed to be burnt out. That means I'm being a good social worker, but this doesn't feel good. Like this really sucks. It's almost, so, <laughs> it's almost like they look at burnout as like a badge of honor. Right. Yeah. Which is completely twisted. It's, it's it, to me, it's so twisted. Cause I, I know, I notice with people either burnout is this real for the most part with people burnout is this badge of honor, but then there's like this small sector of social workers that I've had the pleasure of meeting where they will say they're burnt out over the most minuscule things. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say this is like the majority of social workers, like by all means, but there is a small sect that is going to say, you know, they had a stressful week, you're burnt out because they hear everybody else saying they're burnt out. So their small problem where 
you know, a client cancel and they had to reschedule and fit them in somewhere is now burnout. And it's like, that is totally not burnout. But a lot of these older clinicians, especially who've been in the field for so long, it's almost like it's this rite of passage to be burnt out. Like you've earned yourself the right to call yourself a social worker because you hate your job and hate your life now in a way. Right. I've actually met a few older social workers like that. And I, I feel bad because they're like not really happy and they're just accepting that, that they're like, well, this is the career I chose and here I am. And now the conversations are shifting so much that you don't have to stay in a job if, if, if it's not a good fit for you, like, please don't stay in a job if it's not a good fit. And if you're burnt out, because then you just become part of the system that's not helping it's people. Cool. And for you, like you're miserable. You don't want to be, you don't have a exactly. miserable life. Well, especially now, because it's so, I don't know how it was like back when, you know, they first went to school and whatnot, but in today's society, social work is so broad that you can go pretty much anywhere you want to go licensed or even unlicensed in some cases i know social workers who they kind of got tired of the field and they realized after being in the field for five or six years maybe this wasn't for them but they still wanted to help people so i know a few social workers who ended up going into hr and went into the private sector and worked for businesses and they're actually very happy there now yeah i know a couple social workers who start their own financial business mm -hmm like consulting, long-term care insurance, and they love it. Exactly. You can do, you can do so much in social work. It's kind of, it's honestly kind of crazy. I know that they say that, you know, you shouldn't be a jack of all trades. You should be a master of something. But I honestly think that social work really allows you to be a master of quite a few different things, actually. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's true. That's, that's why I love the field because our skill set is so versatile and adaptable that, if we just learn like a couple things, like, you know, if we wanted to go into finance, right, we just take a couple of classes in finance and we're good at it. Like we got the relationships down. We know how to build the rapport. We know how to read emotions. You know, money is scary. <laughs> so um, we definitely have those skills to be to be successful in really any any field, which is pretty cool. I swear, like with social work. I feel like I, I've always said this. I am never afraid of never having a job. At the end of the day, I will always be employed. I always feel this. I've had, I've actually had friends before um, who actually asked me, you know, when I first started this, why do you want to go on a social work? As, because you're going to be broke the rest of your life. There's that stigma too, um, which is true for some social workers. They do not always make the best wages, but it's definitely not something that we have to accept. But... I was always asked, why would you want to go work in a career so low and just, you know, why wouldn't you, I'm, they, they would say, I make the same amount going to trade school, doing what I'm doing, like welding or stuff like that. Well, now I know a lot of these individuals who went to trade school, um, they are, you know, unfortunately, I would never hope this on anybody, of course, but they have lost their jobs or got laid off because of the coronavirus. When this virus first hit, I had no worries about my job at all. I knew as soon I knew this was going to be a minor hiccup for me and unfortunately for other people it's a lot bigger, but for me I have the privilege to say okay, as soon as this is going to hit, oh, I'm probably just going to be working from home for a while. And that was all I had to worry about. Yep. Yep, same. Definitely privilege in that aspect. For sure. Um 
Awesome. So is there anything, any tips that you feel like it's important for, for social workers to know about, about binge eating disorders or about just their, their physical health or self-care? Um, for an interpersonal tip, I would definitely just say, um, if you feel that you have an issue with food, definitely address it, whether that be through therapy, support groups, internal work, journaling, whatever you feel you need to do, just start it just because, I live by the motto, I would rather think I have a problem when I don't than the other way around. So just start that work and just see what's going on. I almost look at um, mental health as, I almost look at mental health as the way where we should do annual checkups for our mental health, like we would our physical health or, oh, this looks weird. This thing on my back looks weird. Why don't I go to the doctor and get it checked out? I feel like we should do that with mental health treatment too. Like, oh, I've been feeling a certain type of way and I haven't felt this way before or noticed it before. Maybe I should go talk to somebody. You know, it never hurts to go do that. So that would be my interpersonal tip. On a more broad scale with your clients and doing client work, especially when you're doing assessments, biopsychosocial assessments, those sort of things, there's often times in those assessments where there's a dietary section sometimes and I noticed at least as social workers that when I was doing these assessments and I would see other people do it training at different jobs, they would often skip over that assessment or they would just kind of do it for them or just not think it's as important. And you could visibly see that um, if there's a dietary or nutrition part or even an active part, like how active are you on your assessments? Do not just brush over those because you feel it's not as important as the mental health. It most definitely is. I've had clients where they had substance use disorders and I found out that they had no physical activity whatsoever. And so one of the things I did was I said, let's just go for walks for our sessions. And because of that, they created a healthy routine in our sessions, which create a healthy routine in their life. And as a result, they're living active lives and being sober now, a lot of them. So that would definitely be my biggest tip. Don't skip over anything that has to do with wellness as far as physical health, because a lot of social workers will do that because they don't think it's as important which I think is really sad. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. I think that is, that would be a really good IG live for us to do or YouTube video for us to do um, how to integrate the dietary assessment into our initial psychosocial assessments. What do you I think? absolutely love this idea. I would love to do that. Okay, let's do it. We're going to do it. We will decide if it will be on your page or my page, but Go and follow Jay right now. He is on Instagram at that social worker Jay. So before I let you go, I must know what do you have coming up in 2021? Because you have so many amazing things. You have the the badass social workers mm -hmm. merchandise. You have the fit space wellness um, nonprofit mm -hmm. coming up. And specifically for social workers, you have the LCSW exam prep seminar, which, by the way, major, major congratulations on passing your exam. Thank this year. you so much. I absolutely appreciate that. Um, I passed my exam on the first try, which I want to have a minute to just have on this platform and just say, um, I noticed social workers call it this elite club that not a lot of people get into. I did research on this, if this makes anybody feel any better. Um, that is actually a false statement. Um, 75 to 80% of social workers actually pass this exam on the first try. So if this alleviates anybody's stress, please just take a deep breath because for the most part, it's going to be fine. 
Yes, it's going to be fine. I'm going to release this episode right before your exam prep seminar. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So this exam prep seminar is going to be a three-hour workshop that's going to give you all the basic info that you'll need to know to study for, tips on studying for your exam, how to study, how to think on the exam. But it's also going to give you things that you need to do while you study, before you study, how to schedule your studying, and also things that are very important that you need to do the day of the exam and the day before the exam. Because often these small little details are the things that stress us out the most. And so when we're stressed out the day before the exam or the day of the exam, or we're burnt out and whatnot from studying so much like right before this exam starts, it often makes us actually forget a lot of the information that we've been studying so hard to remember. So this takes this takes the typical, this is what you need to study for the exam and puts a little spin on it. And it makes it a little bit more easier for you to know what you need to look for because I notice a lot of social workers and a lot of people who go through these workshops, um, they kind of just teach you everything. They throw everything in there possible to make sure you're overprepared. And that just stresses you out. I'm not, I'm not for one for being that stressed out. And I cannot memorize all of this. So I'm going to tell you what you need to know. I'm going to teach you the acronyms you need to know because acronyms are a big lifesaver on the exam, just FYI. But I'm also going to teach you the I'm going to teach you the reasoning behind the acronyms as well as the exceptions to them. Because if you just follow like an acronym on like a train, like we would on social work, like here's stop one, here's stop two, it's not going to work for you because there are a few exceptions to them, but they're a big helping guide. So it's going to teach you all of this in three hours. It's going to help you work out your plan. And then also I do offer individualized versions of this exam prep uh, seminar. So if you want to work with me and get the lecture individually and you get more personal questions out of it, you can book me for that as well. And I also do individualized tutoring and coaching as well, if anyone's interested in those services. Yes, yes, that is awesome. You might as well pay the experts to go faster and farther than you would. By exactly. Yourself. Exactly. This is everything I have planned for 2021. I actually, Catherine, you're going to think I'm insane, but I actually have stuff planned in 2022 already, but I can't announce that just yet, but just now I have that stuff planned too. No way. I don't think that's insane. I think that is incredibly smart and necessary because the businesses that you're building right now, they're not a fad. You know, they're here to stay. They're definitely needed amongst social workers now and going forward. So I am glad to hear that you are also planning into 2022, just like me. So what what can we get excited for, you know, in 2021 come come January or Well, to start off, we should we should still still be excited for 2020 because I am actually getting ready. So by the time this is released, actually they'll be here. But for my badass social work merch, I am actually going to design a few lines of Christmas wear. So for those of you who are excited to see that, go ahead and check out my merch store for those as well as the other merch that I have on that store. Uh for 2021, uh, my business plan for my nonprofit is currently focused on opening our first mental health clinic within the Detroit or Ann Arbor, Michigan area. Uh, we're deciding on location right now, but we're looking into things like grants and things like that. So hopefully by fall of 2021, that'll be launched and up and running for individuals. So if you want to keep posted on that project, you got to follow me on Instagram for that. And 
yeah, just 2021 is all about building right now. I can't, I honestly cannot wait for 2022 because a lot of this is when it's going to be truly established, to be honest. Yes, yes. So many great things. I'm so excited for you, Jay. Thank you so much for joining me. On oh my God. Thank right. you so much for having and me. This was so much fun. Yes, it was. All of your links are going to be in the show notes. So definitely follow that social worker, Jay, and check out the links in the show notes. Bye, Bye guys. Thank you so much for hanging out with me on Social Workers Rise. If you are looking to add another stream of income while making massive impact on the world, then I highly recommend creating your own online course. I personally use Kajabi and highly recommend it. They make it super easy to turn what you know into what you do. Click the link in the show notes to get started today. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Social Workers Rise. If you loved it, write a review and give us five stars wherever you listen to your podcast. This just helps other people just like you find us and join our community. Also, I would love to connect with you on Instagram. You can find me at Social Workers Rise. I can't wait to see you next week. Bye.